Welcome to Loitering. It's a podcast about the art you can't get over. I'm Mandy. I'm Justine. And today we're talking about, uh, we're throwing it back. Throwing it way back to Emily Dickinson. Yes. A poet that both of us have a hard time getting over for a myriad of reasons. Yes. Most of which because she's haunting and beautiful and so embedded in our American psyche that it's it's really hard for all of us to get over Emily. Yeah. My note here says maybe one of the most famous American poets, perhaps the most famous recognizable woman poet in American history. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think up front, it's important to say like, I am certainly not going to bring anything groundbreaking to this conversation because like, I just started reading her poetry like a few weeks ago. And I've never really dived into her poetry before. Um, and I've read more of her letters than her poetry at this point. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's true, though. I mean, I think just by virtue of being a female writer in the United yeah. States, like Emily Dickinson is your heritage. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely is. Also, I'd like to talk a little bit later about, I think, the importance of Emily Dickinson as like a form of heritage. Mm, um, yes. That we'll, we'll get into later, but just a little bit about Emily Dickinson. She was born in Amherst, Massachusetts in 1830, and she lived there for all but just a few brief periods in her life. Um, specifically, she traveled to Boston for a few weeks at a time, and then she attended Mount Holyoke Seminary for a year, and she died in Amherst in 1886 at the age of 85, or 55. <laughs> so she lived through the Civil War. Which I think is something that people don't really, like, think about with her. Mm -hmm. But she was, like, a Civil War poet. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think a lot of that shows up from time to time in her work. Mm -hmm. um, she was kind of a revolutionary, even though she, like, lived in the woods. Yeah, yeah. Definitely um, abolitionist sympathies. Yeah. And um, there's certain readings I've seen essays that folks write about her as a Civil War poet. Yeah. Like, put a lot of her poems into context with what was going on. She was very well read, even though she was a recluse. She yeah. read the paper really, you know, often. <laughs> yeah. So when we were in grad school, we would have conversations about um, specific Russian poets who were writing during revolutionary times in Russia and how they kind of like stood kind of like head and shoulders above the rest and were able to find each other across like great distance and yes. great turmoil. Mm -hmm. And I feel like Emily Dickinson is kind of doing something similar in the U.S. at this point. She's like identifying Henry David Thoreau as her as her peer. She's identifying William Wordsworth mm -hmm. as her peer. And she's Walt Whitman. Walt Whitman. Yeah. yeah. I think that's the one I was thinking of, people, not Wordsworth. People think of him as like the Civil War poet. Yeah. Um, but I had a fantastic poetry teacher in grad school who said that Walt Whitman saw the universe externally mm -hmm. and Emily Dickinson went further than any other poet internally. Yeah. So it's, yeah. Which is fascinating, yes. I think. Because she, she did. She was very reclusive and she stayed in her town in Amherst and she didn't really have any interest in leaving. And there are letters that she sent to people like, oh, I need to go to Boston for this and I'm going to be away for like three weeks and it's going to be this like insurmountable thing for her to leave town. But um, yeah, she, she really like made this domestic internal world just like blew it up and made it this like very big world mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. um yeah she's just like a fascinating 
person. She really is. And I, I mentioned to you earlier that when I'm reading her, I've been reading a lot of her letters. And uh, her prose is just so, like, lively and present. And it feels like someone that I know. Mm-hmm. Like, it feels like she... It doesn't feel like someone who died 150 years ago. It feels like someone, like here with us now who has this big personality and is like taking up space yeah but if you think about her in her life she didn't take up a lot of space like she only published like eight poems in her life um she wasn't like widely recognized until after her death like she stayed in like two homes her whole life Mm -hmm. she was she had a very small corner of the world that she lived in absolutely yeah Yeah, I thought it'd be a good idea to cover, like, a brief publication history of her work. Perfect, yeah. Like, the Springfield Republican, I think that was, that maybe her first one? I actually don't have written down here any of the publications that she was in. Gotcha. The Springfield Republic. I'm pretty sure, yeah, that Mm -hmm. was, like, the first one. I think that was um, an editor that she had a correspondence with, Mm -hmm. like, through her dad, maybe. Mm -hmm. But Would that be Thomas Wentworth Higginson? I, it may be, or that might have been. Okay. Um, so you lent me this book that starts with, this actually doesn't mention, oh, no, Higginson was the Atlantic. Okay. Um, yeah, so Thomas went with Higginson, wrote a, a column in the Atlantic about, like, encouragement and advice to the young writers of America. And then this, this is the, the first essay and letter that starts this book of poetry. And this is the um, Anchor Books edition, edited by Robert N. Linscott, that was published in, like, 1958-59. So it says, shortly after he re- after writing this column in The Atlantic, he received from Amherst, Massachusetts, four poems with a letter asking him to, quote, say if my verse is alive. Hmm. The letter is unsigned, but enclosed in it was a card on which Emily Dickinson was lightly penciled. Thus began what is perhaps the most provocative correspondence in the history of American literature. I don't think so, but it's a very important correspondence <laughs> that spanned for the rest of her life. And he went to visit her, I think, once or twice mm-hmm. um, in Amherst. And he published this this um, essay in the Atlantic after her death that included a lot of excerpts from her letters to him. Mm-hmm. Um there's a famous letter he wrote to his wife after meeting her for the first time, too. That yeah. Was, a lot of people didn't know what she, like, looked like as an adult or, like, yeah. had any idea. So that was, like, a big deal, too. Mm-hmm. Just someone's firsthand account of having witnessed her, basically. Yeah, <laughs> like, been in the room with her. Yeah, because mm-hmm. the, there's this famous picture that is on the cover of this book that gets used, like, on the Emily Dickinson Museum website, and it's, like, the picture that is I think distributed that's the it. only, like, credited uh, one. And that's her when she's, like, 15 She's, or like, 17. Yeah. 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 Um, what do they call that? A derogotype? I think it's a der- daguerreotype. Daguerreotype. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what's that word? <laughs> yeah. It's, it. um... Or it's, like, the steel plate. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Derogotype. Damn yes. It. <laughs> <laughs> um, I saw... Recently, a photographer did daguerreotype mm-hmm. uh, steel plate portraits of all the cast in Little Women. Oh, cool. Which was wi- written about the same time period. Yeah. Um, yeah. In about the same part of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Very so, cool. Yeah. I love that. It's very cool. It's a very cool series of pictures. <laughs> um, yeah. So her work got widely published um, after her death. After her death, her family found these, like, 
collected poems that she had bound into little books. Fascicles, yeah. Yes. And her sister, her younger sister, Lavinia Dickinson, wanted to have them published, and she went to Sue Gilbert Dickinson, who was her um, older brother's wife. Mm-hmm. And um, Sue was taking, like, way too long to publish them, so Lavinia instead turned to Mabel Loomis Todd, who was Austin Dickinson's mistress. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Um, and then Mabel, I'm not a big fan of Mabel. Mabel edited them to conform to standard grammatical usage and spelling and punctuation. So something that's very notable about Dickinson is her use of unconventional punctuation. She used a lot of dashes and interruptions. Mm-hmm. Um, Mabel edited all that out and had the poems published and these are, like, not really considered the poems as Emily Dickinson wrote them. Mm-hmm. And um, in this 1959 version, those are the poems that are included, are the Mabel Loomis Todd right. version. And it wasn't until the 50s that all of the poems were put together in, like, a three-volume. Because there was, yeah. like, a generational feud that went on with the Sue Gilbert poems and the mm-hmm. Mabel Loomis Todd poems that they, like, passed on to their daughters that they passed on. Yeah. And it was this, like, epic feud. So I think it was in the 50s that finally all of the poems, like, came back together. Yeah. This book says Harvard University obtained mm-hmm. the full Emily Dickinson estate of letters and poems. They were sold to Harvard by someone. I don't know who. But at that point, yeah, in the in the 50s, that's when they all kind of came together. And now Harvard is the, like, official owner right. of those. Mm-hmm. And then that's the first time they were published, like you said, yeah. as they were written. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess a really important part of Emily Dickinson's legacy is this publication history in which she was not published as she wrote poems and she was also like heavily edited and censored by other people Mm -hmm. it's pretty like standard common knowledge among dickinson scholars that emily dickinson was a queer woman and had relationships with women um that got like edited and censored out of her writing during this long generation's long feud mm-hmm. of stuff and she this is always kind of brought up as like kind of a, a negative like oh she wasn't recognized during her life like she, she was this great poet but she never had fame for it um but she's also written down like she in a letter to thomas wentworth higginson she wrote if fame belonged to me i could not escape her if she did not the longest day would pass me on the chase and the approbation of my dog would forsake me then my barefoot rank is better so it doesn't seem like she wants like she didn't even want to leave her dad's house yeah she didn't want to leave home like she didn't yeah i i'm kind of curious about the way that we're like projecting this modern idea of recognition well, onto it's also her. a very american idea yeah <laughs> yeah and she was like i just want to live in my house with my dog <laughs> he's dumb and brave <laughs> um I'm just really into Emily Dickinson. Yeah, (laughs) she's fascinating. And I think the fascinating thing about her is that there's very little we can say for sure because she was so, Mm -hmm. uh, like, secretive and mysterious. Yeah. But I think that the things we can say for sure all come from her poetry Mm -hmm. and her letters, from what she actually said, which is why it's so frustrating that it was censored. Yeah. But I will say this. um, I'm not a huge fan of Mabel Loomis Todd either, but I'm very thankful for her because I don't know that we'd know who Emily Dickinson was if it wasn't for Mabel Loomis Todd because um, Sue Gilbert Dickinson Austin's wife Mm -hmm. and um, you know probably Emily's longtime like uh, 
I won't say lover. I don't know, but I mean, we're pretty sure. We're right? yeah. Like, Dickinson we're scholars sure. are like generally very comfortable saying like Emily Dickinson had a relationship with Sue yes, Gilbert. Yes, and like if you read some of the things that they wrote about each other, mm-hmm. it's like. I wouldn't write that about my best friend. Like, I love my best friend. Like, some of the pushback, so this is an interesting argument. Like, so some of the pushback is that in in that century, like, women's relationships were different. But one of the um, people said, but the interesting thing about the correspondence is if that were the case, she wouldn't be so self-conscious with some of her, like, writing to Sue. And... Yeah, I think there's also, definitely like a self awareness of like I really love this person today, like yeah. that that like discomfort that only comes with like a lover. Yeah, you know what I mean. I think we're also looking for like explicit evidence that would not have existed at the time. Yeah, like we're not gonna find a sex tape, like <laughs> yeah, or or even like like the idea of queerness didn't mm-hmm. really exist as we know it now mm-hmm. in the 1850s or 60s like it it just wasn't a concept that they had back then because it wasn't a part of society like it wasn't a thing that anyone was talking about mm-hmm. um but and like, so to it find existed, like an ex- which was interesting yeah, it like definitely women did existed. live together like especially you know the whole concept of the old maid i think a yeah. lot of time was women like choosing to live together and be together for the rest of forever. Yeah. Another interesting point I've heard somebody say was Uh that um, as queer women at the time, like Emily Dickinson didn't have to get married because of her social cast. Yeah. But Sue Gilbert did. Yeah. So. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was an interesting point. Emily Dickinson and also Lavinia never got married. Mm -hmm. I don't know if Lavinia lived on the homestead. The homestead was the name of their home. Yeah, the big mansion that yeah. I think her grandfather had built. I'm always fascinated yeah. with that part of the story because her grandfather built the homestead and I think like Amherst College he might have helped yeah. found in Amherst, the one for men. And then he like lost all of their money and then her dad like ended up buying it back only mm-hmm. when, when she was like 25 or something. So when she was an adult. Yeah. Um, but the house that they lived in before that, the house on Pleasant Street. Yeah. was um pretty close too so always in that same general Mm -hmm. area yeah but yeah i think i want to say lavinia lived there too i Um, think so mm -hmm. yeah her dad was a congressman Mm -hmm. so their family did have money they were yeah of a higher social class and were also just like very respected and renowned in amherst Mm -hmm. i think yeah yeah, and then Austin, like, they built his house, like, 100 yards away from the homestead. So yeah. her and Sue would write all day. But yeah. it was, like, going back and forth, like, 100 yards. They would, like, walk it across the yard and be like, here. <laughs> we can't hang out all day, but... Yeah, so generally, scholars agree that there was this relationship. And we all say, like, well, we can't know for sure because mm-hmm. that's kind of the respectful thing to do with writers right. in a I different think, yeah. time. What we do know for sure, though, I think, was that was the person she loved most in the world, who yes. loved her most in the world. Yes. So it had to have been very difficult for Sue to move through that quickly. Yeah. Her life's work. <laughs> yeah. Just, like, some of the letters and poems that Emily Dickinson has written that are addressed to Sue or... Everyone, like, who knew about the poems knew that they were addressed to Sue, so we know from context. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, like, pretty sexy poems. Yeah, they really are. Yeah, so, like... We'll read a couple. It's, uh... 
like you said earlier, the only thing we really know is her poetry, and she wrote a lot of it. Yes. And she, she, I think 1,800 poems they found. Yeah. And not just in the fascicles. They were, like, on, like, chocolate wrappers and, yeah. like, receipts and on the edges of envelopes. They were everywhere. Yeah. And another interesting part, I think, when we're talking about people making editing choices for her mm-hmm. is that in the fascicles, uh, she would have alternate words everywhere too that it wasn't even like she wanted to give the reader a choice of like which word to read so it's almost like emily dickinson is like this first like multimodal poet can you imagine her living right now like you could click this one and then it could be read this way but she was already doing that and like it's just it's mind-boggling before we had any kind of technology to allow that Yeah. yeah so i don't think that she intended for one single word sometimes to yeah. be placed somewhere but folks had to make that editing choice at the time mm-hmm. to publish it which makes sense but it just the form of it was supposed to live right there where it's really fluid and I yeah. think that's one of the fascinating things about her poetry do you know if the that has been published like as an either or now do oh we that's have an interesting question versions not, of that yeah not that I've seen or heard about mm-hmm. but I mean, it has to exist. Like, there's a finite amount of stuff. Yeah. And Harvard has it. Yes. So, like... Yes. <laughs> yeah. The fascicles definitely exist. And there are books where you can, like, see, like, the printouts of them and everything. Yeah. But in terms of having a, like, modern edition where they show you, like, different yes. directions to read it, that would be really awesome. Yeah. I've started diving into, like, the archives of her work. Mm-hmm. It's all archived online. And you can see, like, a scanned image of yes. the page and yes. then the transcript of it next to it, which I can cannot read her handwriting like at all oh my gosh yeah it's like famously spidery and yeah yeah all over the place um but just like talking about her prolific writing habits um this this book the anchor editions in the introduction says um by 1858, she was copying her poems in ink and gathering them together in little packets loosely bound by thread in that year she appears to have written 52 poems so a poem a week in 1862, there was an astonishing total of 356. In 1865, the number had fallen off to 85 and thereafter averaged about 20 a year. Can you imagine writing like 350 poems in a year? I sure can't. I've never even, I don't think I've ever even written like 52 poems in my whole life. <laughs> like, like she's just, she just must have been writing all the time, constantly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just astounding. Um, do you want to read some of her poems? Do we want to? Yeah. yeah, let's pick out a few of our favorites. Okay. So we went through this um, reading edition, the Franklin Anthology, which is a good one. This mm-hmm. is the one that I used in my poetry class at Columbia. And this is the complete poems, correct? This is all of yes, the poems? Yes. Okay. Um, so yeah, Mandy and I both, um, flagged some that we liked, so maybe we should just go in order of our flags. Okay. I think this one was one of yours, the volcanoes. Yes. I guess I should also mention, I've been watching the show Dickinson that is on Apple TV Plus. That is, um, a very anachronistic look at Emily Dickinson's life. And every episode is kind of structured around one of her poems. And the second episode is structured around this volcanoes, um, poem, and it says, I have never seen volcanoes, but when travelers tell how those old phlegmatic mountains, usually so still, bear within appalling ordnance, fire and smoke and gun, taking villages for breakfast and appalling men. If the stillness is volcanic in the human face, when upon a pain titanic features keep their place, 
if at length the smoldering anguish will not overcome, and the palpitating vineyard in the dust be thrown, if some loving antiquary on resumption mourn will not cry with joy Pompeii till his to the hills return. Um, I think the next one we have flagged is Wild Nights. Perfect. Wild Nights, Wild Nights. Were I with thee, Wild Nights should be our luxury. Feudal the winds to a heart in port, done with the compass, done with the chart. Rowing in Eden, ah, the sea, might I but more tonight in thee. A very sexy poem. But in thee, I think is yeah. interesting. Yeah. Uh, Hope is the thing with feathers is a very famous one. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard and and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asks a crumb of me. And then the next one we've selected is I like a look of agony yes i love this one i like a look of agony because i know it's true men do not sham convulsion nor simulate a throw the eyes glaze once and that is death impossible to feign the beads open the forehead by homely anguish strung so, like, I feel her rhythm is very noticeable right off the bat, mm-hmm. which actually makes it hard for me to, like, read on the train her yeah. poetry. Yeah, oh, interesting. Because I'm, like, it's got just, like, a very specific, like, kind of, I don't know if it's, I haven't measured to see if it's, like, iambic pentameter or not, but it feels very, like, naturally English. Yeah, yeah. And the way that iambic pentameter is. It's, um, it's a hymn meter. Yeah. Too. So yes. like some musical, like musical people um, study Emily Dickinson, like it could be sung to like any church hymn too. Yeah. Which is really interesting. Which is really interesting because she was not really big in the church. Yeah. I've heard it said she um, was spiritual, but she hated the dogma of the church. Yes. And yeah, a lot of her poems about agony and death, like this part, men do not sham convulsion nor simulate a throw. Mm-hmm. The eyes glaze once and that is death. So um, something that should be mentioned, I think that like her obsession with death and with um, like the juxtaposition between life and death and how it looks, the homestead looked out across the cemetery Mm. and I think that she saw like a number of family and friends die I think there was one winter where like 12 of her friends died yeah or something ridiculous like I there's a letter that she was writing to somebody um saying that like she was the only scholar left like of friends and master and Mm -hmm. yeah so she was somebody that was very, very aware of being alive and what yes. that felt like. And I think it's uh, really fascinating. And I do think her verse is alive, Mr. Yes. Higginson. Oh, did you bark- bookmark this one? Oh, did I? And I Blitz? think so. Yeah, I think the only one I have bookmarked is a couplet. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was kind of used to passing it back and forth. That was a good, a good thing. Oh, back. it's this one down here. Oh, okay. So 372. After great pain, a formal feeling comes. The nerves sit ceremonious like tombs. The stiff heart questions, was it he that bore, and yesterday, or centuries before? The feet mechanical go round, a wooden way, of ground or air or aught, regardless grown, a court's contentment like a stone. 
This is the hour of lead, remembered if outlived, as freezing persons recollect the snow, first chill, then stupor, then the letting go. That one is one of my very, very favorites. I won't pretend to have uh, experienced great pain on par with Emily Dickinson <laughs> losing 12 family and friend uh, members uh, in a single winter. But I think that just the way that she's able to articulate what goes on inside the body. Yeah. After great pain, a formal feeling comes. The nerves sit ceremonious like tombs. Yes. Like once that shock is over and then your body is just numb. Mm-hmm. I've, I've never heard uh, a more eloquent description of that feeling. It's... um. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just it's it's stark and it's alive and it's um it's frightening too. Um the last part as freezing persons recollect the snow, the chill, the stupor, the letting go. You almost feel like it's someone freezing to death yeah. like on a mountain in like <laughs> Mount Everest or yeah. something. It's um it's just this like incredible incredible work done in a very short space. Yeah. I, I feel that way about volcanoes, too. This, like, feeling of just, like, keeping something inside and not feeling it expressed. It, she just, like, how, she... It must have been so revolutionary when her poetry was first published. And she was not only, like, a woman poet, but she was a woman poet writing about, like, domestic life. Contrast to uh, Walt Whitman, who's writing about, like, the leaves and the city and blah, blah, blah. Yes. And she's also writing a lot about the body, like, her yes. own body. Yeah. At a time when women weren't, like, when women were just, like, bodies to have children and mm-hmm. then cover it up. Like, right, right. There wasn't a lot of, like, validity granted to the feeling of a woman having a body. Yeah, and a woman's pain. Yeah. And pain is, um, pain I guess, a refrain that I, that's yeah. like, I'm looking at all the ones I flagged <laughs> the next one. It's like, but there's a reason that those speak to us, there I think. Because, yeah. 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 This one, uh, 515, there is a pain so utter it swallows substance up, then covers the abyss with trance so memory can step around, across, upon it, as one within a swoon. Go safely where an open eye would drop him bone by bone. Ah, oh, it's very good. So good. I can't <laughs> handle it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Maybe we'll go to this one next because I feel like I'm hogging Emily. Oh, that's fine. It's just a couplet. <laughs> I just I just bookmarked this little couplet. I guess maybe let's look at what surrounds it because this is chronological, right? Mm-hmm. This is considered chronological. Oh, ish, I think. Okay. Yeah, it's like estimated. Yeah. This is really late in her writing. Mm-hmm. Um, the stuff we were, most of the stuff we read earlier is in like the first half of this anthology. And then in the end, she's doing this thing where she's starting to like capitalize weird, capitalize the nouns to kind of turn them into proper nouns or the way that like German capitalizes their nouns. Right. So she's playing more with language here. And she's also talking a lot more about like, it kind of reads a little like folklore. She's re- she's writing a- about things happening in town or in nature and kind of giving a little bit of life to it. And so the couplet that I have flagged is kind of between these other two ones. And um, the first one says, The beggar at the door for fame were easily supplied, but bread is that diviner thing disclosed to be denied. Mm. There's just so much in these four little lines. 
And then the couplet that I have here says, in this short life that only lasts an hour, how much, how little is within our power. Wow. I just, it's just, so, it's almost like aphoristic in its brief. Oh, it absolutely is. Yeah. And then the next one says, the face we choose to miss, be it but for a day, as absent as a hundred years when it has rode away. It's about missing someone. It is. And they demand time spent to kind of think mm-hmm. about what it is that she just did in that short amount of yeah. space. Yeah. I'm finding this with her letters too. Like I've been writing down uh, some lines from her letters that... Oh yeah. Let's do those in a minute. Really like so, you know, we could do this all day long because each of these poems has a universe inside of it. Yeah. But this is the last one that comes to my mind. 867. I felt a cleaving in my mind as if my brain had split. I tried to match it seam by seam, but could not make them fit. The thought behind I strove to join unto the thought before, but sequence raveled out of sound like balls upon a floor. But I felt a cleaving in my mind. How violent is that? You think of a meat cleaver. Mm -hmm. Like you think of the brain being literally split in half as if my brain had split. I tried to match it seam by seam when you have just things that won't like resonate or like won't come together. It won't make sense together. Yeah. And oh my gosh, it's just what she can do with the body metaphorically is Mm -hmm. just staggering. I also just, I love the way she puts sentences together. Mm -hmm. Um, This is from one of her letters. I think this is to, yeah, this is to Thomas Wentworth Higginson um, when she's writing about why she's started to write. And it says, I had a terror since September, I could tell to none. And so I sing as the boy does by the burying ground because I am afraid. Just like, (laughs) just like I want to start writing poems because I've seen a lot of people die and it's affected me emotionally is what I would say. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But then she's like... Let me spin this beautiful, beautiful poem about it. Oh my goodness. Um, I do want to chat a little bit. We touched on it, but her um, like spiritual sense and how she felt about religion. Like weirdly, I feel like Emily Dickinson is like, uh, like our first almost atheist Mm -hmm. in terms of uh, like a poet or a central figure in America, even though um, I think that there's good places to to see that she does believe in God or that she believes in an afterlife. If you're just looking at the basis of her poetry, Mm -hmm. Um, she famously like refused to become a Christian in the formal sense, even though the rest of her family was Christian, even though she was at Mount Holyoke, that Mm -hmm. super Christian school, she never um, formally jo- she, joined the church. No, she yeah. refused to formally join the church, mm-hmm. which I think is is a huge... I mean, it is a luxury um, probably yeah. at that time she for definitely... a woman of her social cl- class. But yeah. at the same time, such a huge statement to make against um, something that was so big. Mm-hmm. Someone so little making such a huge statement against something so big. Yeah, And I think that that's part of what we love about literature and about um, women in literature at this time is just 
the outlaw nature of it. Yeah. The way that she stayed up all night writing poetry, even though she was running her father's house and Mm -hmm. still had to very much be a woman within um, that structure, even though she wasn't married, she still had to like perform womanly duties. There's a funny anecdote about her dad uh, saying that like there was a stain on one of his plates and she picked it up and went outside and smashed it. (laughs) Yeah. She was a very rebellious person. Incredibly rebellious, but like quietly rebellious. Mm -hmm. Like, and I think that that's, um, just something that resonates and really comes through in her poetry too. And why we still respond to it to this Mm -hmm. day. Yeah. About the church she has written, she wrote in one of her letters to someone, I was trying to find it, but I can't find it. Um, she says, I am one of the lingering bad ones. Yes. As yes. like, my whole family has joined the church and they really want me to, and I'm just not doing it. There was like a, a word that was used for um, like ho- the hopeless or the hope, mm. the hope nots or something. Mm-hmm. Um, Mary Lyon was the woman who ran Mount Holyoke and she was like a famously um, like dogmatic terrifying (laughs) yeah (laughs) who emily stood up to but yeah i I think she had a word for emily like she's a a hope not or a hopeless person Mm -hmm. or something to that effect emily dickinson was also very well educated for women at her time Mm -hmm. um she went to amherst women's college for like seven or eight years and then she went to mount holyoke um for a year and so yeah she definitely did live this very like privileged luxurious kind of life Mm -hmm. for a woman in her time for a woman in her time yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. um there's yeah shakespeare in the bible were her two big yeah um things that she read or that she was able to read but but there is a lot of evidence that she read like popular literature on Mm -hmm. the sly too like I think Jane Eyre was like a big one for her. And there, mm-hmm. I think there's evidence that she read it like the year after it was published in England or something. So she wasn't like behind the times by any means. Yeah. There's a, there's a paragraph in this uh, letter to Thomas Wentworth Higginson that says, you inquire my books for poets. I have Keats and Mr. and Mrs. Browning, her prose, Mr. Ruskin, Sir Thomas Brown and the Revelations. Ruskin is an interesting one. Yeah, we read Ruskin in grad school, and I remember being really captivated by him. And so for her to have read him makes a lot of sense to me. It does. There's There's a point in this letter or this column that he's writing for The Atlantic where he said, afterwards, when she regained her eyes, when she regained her eyes, so she had some eyesight problems, um, she read Shakespeare and thought to herself, why is any other book needed? Wow. Which, I mean... As an English major, I get it. <laughs> yeah, she's just this, like, fascinating person who feels so, like, alive and present. And I've just been, like, really captivated by her the past couple weeks. Yeah. Um, and part of it, too, has been a little frustrating because, like, I'm reading these letters and I'm trying to find evidence of her love life and her sexuality and her queerness. And it's just been so like obviously erased and so obviously like cut out of letters um this collection of letters at the back of this book like doesn't even include sue gilbert dickinson as a recipient it has this like list of like directory of recipients who received her letters and it's like her sister her brother her father um mabel loomis todd 
Which what Sue doesn't a, it like stab in the gut that Mabel Loomis Todd is in there and Sue isn't. Yeah. I don't think she even like ever met Mabel Loomis Todd in person. Oh really? There's like a famous um story where Mabel Loomis Todd, she was like a singer or like a performer uh-huh. of some sort, and she came and sang at the homestead and Emily like listened but didn't come into the room. No one saw her. She was just listening like from another room and like wrote a poem as she was listening and then sent it to Mabel Lewis with a glass of sherry, (laughs) like as a thank you, (laughs) which I love that story so much. I was just like, oh my God. But she was like, no, I won't deign to come in the room, but here's a poem as a thank you with a glass of sherry. It was lovely. (laughs) That is so perfectly like Dickinson Petty. I love it. I was, uh, talking about this a little bit in uh therapy on like a good day when I was like nothing's really going wrong I'm like reading Emily Dickinson I was just talking about like how part of me was looking for like some evidence I guess of queerness before like 1980 and how like it's it would just be nice to see that exist before the last like 40 years yeah, um, I mean, I think, like, the 19th century, you'll find a lot if you're not looking in, like, super obvious places. And it feels weird yeah. to, like, say Emily Dickinson is a super obvious place because she obviously tried so hard to keep things tamped down. Yeah. But um, I think... If you know what, like, a masked version of that looks like... Exactly, yeah. It's not hard to find. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And I'm thinking about, like, fiction I've read maybe I could give mm-hmm. you. Yeah. Yeah. But um, Emily Dickinson, man, ah, I had a thought and I lost it. Okay. <laughs> I hate it when that happens. happens there are just so the many thoughts and feelings. Yeah. Um, oh, I, I know what I was going to say. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, I think, yeah, spending more time on the poems. I think that's where she put her heart and soul. I yeah. think you'll find evidence there. I really do. Yeah. I think that's the one place that has it hasn't been able to be stamped out. Mm-hmm. Wild Nights is one for sure. I know we read through them all quickly, but all of these require so much time mm-hmm. and and study. They're just all so, so intense. Yeah, I think that's like, I didn't find it super accessible in the past, is that I was trying to just read it at a certain pace, but I've been, I've been just like reading through her letters on the train in the morning mm-hmm. as kind of a way to like wake up my brain. And the letters are all... Like, they force me to, like, slow down my thoughts a little bit in yeah. order to, to really, like, get into them and understand them. And so she definitely, like, demands her own pace, I She think. does. And I think that, like, she was so much smarter than probably anyone ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that I think that she left us all the evidence we need for her life. In, in, these, the in these words. Yeah. I really, really do. And I think she did it right under everybody's noses. Yeah. This one, I just like literally flipped to this one. I wasn't looking for it at all. But good night because we must. Mm-hmm. How intricate the dust. I would go now. Oh, incognito. Saucy, saucy Sarah. <sighs> to elude me so. Father, they won't tell me. Won't you tell them to? Like, good lord. <laughs> Saucy, saucy seraph. <laughs> yeah. There's Dang. one thing that she wrote, this little poem that I think is like included in this, um, in this letter that like really resonated with me. I can't find it. But oh man, for some reason that line really gets me good night because we must. Yeah. And it, it, there, it's presented in this book as just like one after another, but it's very much like 
you have to pick it up and read it and then put you it down. You do, yeah. And walk around with it for the rest of your day. Yes. And then come back to it. There's this one. Is it true, dear Sue? Are there two? Oh, yes. I shouldn't like to come for fear of joggling him. If you could shut him up in a coffee cup or tie him to a pin till I got in or make him fast to Toby's fist, hissed whilst I come. Like, okay. Uh, yeah. I get it. <laughs> yeah. For fear of joggling him. I don't know. I'm reading that as her brother. <laughs> I'm, yeah. <laughs> get rid of him. Yes. <laughs> also, I thought of this no, earlier. She loved him, though, Yes. Too. They, they had a very, very close, close relationship. relationship. The Spectre of Death in uh, the Dickinson TV show is played by Wiz Khalifa. Oh. <laughs> it's just a very, it's a very good we watched a scene earlier where they're doing like like a 19th century ladies and lords kind of dance to like a rap song, like a trap. <laughs> Which is like low-key exactly what I wanted my wedding to be like. Yeah. I wanted everyone to dress in 19th century garb. And just like <laughs> twerk. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess the show is kind of how I first got so into this. And then I was like, I just want to know everything about her life. I, I just, uh, it's been like comforting and, uh, relaxing and kind of soothing, like starting out the new year and like getting into this poetry and I want to read more poetry. So I've gotten a few poetry books. Um, Marky actually sent me a few poetry books too. Nice. Um, but yeah, I'm starting with Emily Dickinson because she's kind of... That's a good place to start. Yeah. I mean, you were talking about heritage and I was like, yeah, she's like a woman writer in America and she's also kind of this, like, probably queer woman who, like, was just living the life she wanted. It, it just feels very, like, resonant. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. So I, I don't know. You're just very comforted by it. Mm-hmm. Do you have any final Emily Dickinson thoughts? You know, I think that Emily Dickinson is the best poet in yeah. our... Uh, our national canon, for yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think. There's actually, um, her contemporaries show up in this Apple TV show. Mm-hmm. Um, and Henry David Thoreau is played by John Mulaney. Oh. And he, do you know a lot about Henry David Thoreau? Ish, like some. I, like, famously mispronounced his name as a child in, <laughs> um... A, like, my side of the mountain reenactment that me and my friends did for a book <laughs> thing. Um, but I called him Thur you. <laughs> but, yeah. No, I know more about him than that. Okay. <laughs> That's just always what I think of. Yeah. Apparently, he, like, lived in the woods and all this stuff, but he lived, like, in his mom's backyard. Yeah. (laughs) And his mom did his laundry, and his sister would, like, bring him food. And so there's a scene in the show where Emily Dickinson goes to visit him, and she's, like, trying to talk to him, and he's all, like, oh, I live in the woods, and blah, 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 and the lake, and the still lake. And she's, like, there's, like, a bunch of people at that lake. (laughs) And then his mom knocks on the door, and he's, she's, like, Henry, I have your laundry. (laughs) The show is just, like, don't put this guy on a pedestal. Like, he, he's not the guy he says he is. Like, Emily is the person who he says he is. Wow. Yeah. So the show is also very much, like, Emily is the greatest poet. 
in American history. I haven't seen it, but it also sounds like it does something really interesting, which is it brings those people into like more of a living space. Yes. Because I think we do put them on a pedestal because we think of that time as so dead Uh that we think of them as so like proper and formal, like as they appear on pages in front of us that we study. But they were real living, breathing people that like did weird shit. Like that guy you went to college with that like, you know what I mean? Like, or like Emily Dickinson breaking a plate. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. Like they were living, breathing human beings who uh, just like were able to transcribe the experience of being a human better than anyone. Yeah. And I think once like once I was able to kind of break into Emily's poetry and like understand what her big eloquent lines and sentences were saying, I was like, oh, these are so like intensely human they are and another thing i would say for close reading of emily dickinson Mm -hmm. i believe there's an online like lexicon yes of that time Mm -hmm. yeah so i'd say this for anybody who's reading emily dickinson closely go up and look at that lexicon because that will just open worlds of possibilities to what certain things Mm -hmm. meant then it may even be a word you know and recognize but it could have had a slightly different meaning at the time that completely changes the meaning of the poem Mm mm-hmm and part of the reason I, like, stumbled on one of the poems I was reading is because she spelled upon with an O. Yeah, she does. She spells it with an O. Like, she uh-huh. just, like, and some of that is, like, 19th century writing wasn't as uniform as writing is now because mm-hmm. the printing press had only, like, just become right, a thing right. in, like, mass production. And so, like, spelling wasn't standardized the way mm-hmm. it is now, but, like, some of it is also her, like, choosing a different spelling. Yes. And so yes. I would be interested in learning more about like which is her and which is just like a common mm-hmm. other and That was usage. one of the like uh criticisms of her too. Like, oh my gosh, so many words are misspelled and like weirdly capitalized. Why? And like th- those it's were like, the edits it's an that were made. artistic choice. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I do think she is probably like the best American poet. I think she is too because yeah. that was her life and her craft and I mm-hmm. think that um someone who spent their life doing something is going to be better than somebody who does it on the side. Womp womp. 10,000 hours. Yep. (laughs) I'm doing it on the side right now. (laughs) That's what this whole podcast is. (laughs) But yeah. Yeah. Making it part of your daily life. I think that's a a good note. Yeah. It's hard though. It is. It's very hard. You have to work hard and that's the thing too. She stayed up late at night to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the poems that you find, like there's a famous one on a chocolate wrapper and it sounds decadent like she was sitting and eating chocolate and like, but it was probably more something like she was using it to put in a cake for the house and like thought of something while she was baking and wrote it down. Like she lived a very like active domestic life Yeah, Yeah. After... I mean, she lived at home, and so her and her mother and her sister were, like, running the household. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, they it was just, like, a constant job. Mm-hmm. It was a huge house to a mansion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for talking about Emily Dickinson with me. Today and any day, my dear. Any day. <laughs> Forever, Emily. There's also a poem she signs off as Sue Forevermore. Oh, which, yes. Yeah. I can't remember which one that is, yeah. but... All right. Well, if you want to find us in the world, uh, we are at Loitering Pod on Instagram, and you can send us an email at loiteringpodcast at gmail.com, and you can rate us and review us on iTunes, and we would really appreciate it. Yes, please do. Uh, And until next time, uh, this has been Loitering. 
I'm Mandy. I'm Justine. And bye. Thanks for loitering with us. Bye. Bye.